Is it possible that heart attacks in our lifetime will no longer be a leading cause of death? Will the heart attack eventually become obsolete? You are listening to a special segment on medical education on the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Morteza Nagavi, who is chairman and founder of SHAPE, which is the Society for Heart Attack Prevention and Eradication. And also joining us is Dr. P.K. Shaw, Chief of Cardiology at Cedar sinai Medical Center and Professor of Medicine at UCLA. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to be here, too. Well, I'd like to start with Dr. Nagavi. Tell us a little bit about SHAPE, how it got started, how you got interested in it, and how it's going, quite frankly. Sure. This is Dr. Nagavi from Houston. SHAPE is indeed an uh, evolution of our discovery of vulnerable plaque, where uh, a number of pioneering Scientists, my former colleagues, Dr. James Willerson, Ward Cassells, Valentin Fusters, James Muller, and Dr. Shaw and Falk have made revolutionary discoveries that certain types of plaques are indeed the underlying cause of heart attacks. And if we are able to identify them, we could prevent heart attacks. Let me jump in and ask Dr. Shaw, who's in the trenches, how are you currently identifying the vulnerable plaque without doing a an IVIS or an infrared procedure? Is there a way to find that plaque? With the currently available technologies and methodologies, I don't think it's reliably possible to identify a vulnerable plaque. But I do think that we can do better in terms of identifying the vulnerable patient based on not only the characteristics that we can obtain from history and physical examination, but inventory of risk factors and add to that what we believe is an important component of identification of risk is the detection of subclinical vascular disease before it causes any symptoms. And I think at the present time, that's as far as we can go. Specifically, identifying vulnerable plaque is an area of intense investigation using MRI, CT, FDG, PET, but none of those techniques are currently usable on a day-to-day basis. That may change in the future. Well, I may interrupt. Vulnerable plaque is not really one vulnerable plaque. There are multiple plaques, maybe two or three, and they change over time. So we don't know if a plaque stays vulnerable for a year, for a month, or for a few weeks. So it is very important to understand that a vulnerable patient, which has also additional factors of vulnerability, like vulnerable blood, a blood that is thermogenic and at risk of developing clot, or a myocardium that is very susceptible to ischemia, are also come to the equation. That's why the vulnerable patient concept was introduced, and we were able to create a, a consensus among leaders in the field that we should move from vulnerable plaque to vulnerable patient, not to disregard vulnerable plaque, rather than to broaden our view and be able to identify the vulnerable patient. Okay, so when I go to work tomorrow and I am in my office, a lipidologist in a general internal medicine office, and I have somebody come in who's hypertensive, hyperlipidemic, who's got metabolic syndrome, positive family history, can I safely assume he is a vulnerable patient, or is there something more I need to look for? If I can answer that, this is Dr. Nagavi Kane. The vulnerable patient, in our definition, is an individual at very high risk of a near-future heart attack. 
If your patient has had a prior history of coronary events, it's already by definition a vulnerable patient. If that patient has a very high burden of subclinical atherosclerosis measured by coronary calcium or carotid IMD, is also a vulnerable patient. If your patient doesn't know any of these and is only has some risk factors and is not taking medications, aggressive treatment, your patient in our proposal, the SHAPE proposal, is a subject of a screening. I'm glad you brought up IMT. I do IMT in my office, and it has been eye-opening and remarkable of what I am finding when I'm looking at pretty much low-risk patients. They have 40% blockages and huge plaques sitting in their carotid arteries. This is P.K. Shah. You just made the point to really give support to the concept of shape, and this is exactly several years ago why myself, Mort, and Erling and others got together and said, you know, simply taking an inventory of risk factors in asymptomatic, otherwise healthy individuals does not appear to give us the same kind of information that we can get from directly identifying subclinical atherosclerosis. And why don't we actually look at the arteries rather than just the risk factors and then really determine if a patient has atherosclerosis or not. Right. Otherwise, we're guessing. Otherwise, we're guessing. Otherwise, it's a strategy to treat everybody. And here's the dilemma. Vast majority of people will have risk factors, and only a minority of them will get atherosclerosis. And a minority of those with atherosclerosis will actually get an event. But because the denominator is so huge, even though the percentage of patients that get into trouble is not very high, the absolute numbers are staggering. So the question is, if you have such a high prevalence of risk factors that 80% of the population or 70% of the population has it, then the risk factors are no longer discriminant in terms of predicting who is going to get an event and who is not. So to bring us a step closer to really identifying individuals who are at risk, due to known and unknown risk factors and due to known and unknown protective factors. Looking for atherosclerosis in a vascular bed is actually giving us an integrated view of known, unknown risk factors and protective factors. And I think that's the fundamental point about SHAPE. If I may add here, Larry Mortnagavi here, exactly what Dr. Shah said, I'd like to make one thing very clear, that we are not discounting risk factors. They're nice, but they're not sufficient. They're not sufficient. You can have two individuals, one with lots of plaque in coronaries, about to erupt vulnerable plaque or any other types of plaque, and the other one with no plaque. Both can have cholesterol 220 and LDL 130, 140, and we just don't have ability to distinguish between the two. And as you know, one is in urgent need of aggressive treatment, and the other one could be managed in a more uh, conservative way. So that's what the shape comes in and says, after assessment of risk factors. So we do want everyone to be screened. We do want everyone to know their Framingham risk score. Framingham risk score is a very cheap and easy way to identify long-term risk, but it is completely blind to near future risk of a coronary event. 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment on medical education on the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm joined today by two guests, Dr. Morteza Nagavi, who is the chairman and founder of the Society for Heart Attack Prevention and Eradication, also known as SHAPE, and Dr. P.K. Shah, Chief of Cardiology at Cedars-Sinai and Professor of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Nagavi, you just brought up Framingham risk calculations, and I personally think they are as good as tossing a coin in the air. Half of the time they're right, half of the time they're wrong, and again, I think it's insufficient, and we need more screening. And besides IMT, do you guys like EBCT? Do you like CTAs? Do you like fishing for different biomarkers? What do you guys like? Morton Gavi here. I would like to restate what I said about Framingham. I do not believe that the Framingham is useless. I think it's very valuable for long term. And as a society and policymaker, we should look into long-term risk assessment. We should look into screening for assessment of Framingham risk score in early age, 30s, 40s, so everyone knows their Framingham risk score for 20 years later. But they're not sufficient. And as you said, it's like almost flipping a coin for an immediate risk assessment. And so what else we have in addition to SHAPE? SHAPE reviewed a number of available tools, everything that was out there. And we found only coronary calcium score and carotid IMT were sufficiently studied to be incorporated in assessment of atherosclerosis. That's what we're focusing on, subclinical atherosclerosis. Yeah, I'd like to interject. And when, when you say IMT, give me a normal IMT and give me a IMT score that you would consider that this person has atherosclerosis or the beginnings of. Well, IMT is an area that the cut points are still very questionable. But we, if you have an IMT more than one millimeter, that's a heart individual. There are several studies, and we have contributed to the field, put together an IMT committee with Dr. Natvi and Dr. Pam Douglas and others. They're working on this. But if you find a plaque in carotid, or if you find an IMT more than 1.5, you're really in the very high-risk individual. This In practice, I see patients virtually every single day of the week. The way I look at identifying subclinical atherosclerosis, we begin with a carotid ultrasound. And the reason for that is there's no radiation involved. It's relatively inexpensive. And if you see a plaque in the carotid tree and or you see a markedly increased IMT, then we stop there for screening because we have identified atherosclerosis and we don't, I don't personally then feel compelled to do another test. Let me ask you, PK, if they have a clean, because I have seen in my own practice people come in that have had stents placed and then I look at their carotids and they've got beautiful carotids. So what's the correlation between the two? So if they have an abnormal carotid, I stop screening. If they have a normal, I look for another vascular bed, and that is usually a coronary CT. So that's the way I, and you are absolutely correct. We have an abstract that's being presented at the American College of Cardiology in two weeks, which will show that 50% of patients, in our experience, who have zero coronary calcium actually have carotid atherosclerosis. And the reverse is also common where carotids are okay, but you have coronary calcium. So my principle is, Go for the easiest vascular bed first. If it's abnormal, you've already identified tendency. If it is normal, look for another vascular bed, and that's usually going to be the coronary bed. I think that 
that basically eliminates the need for having to do two tests in everybody. And it also sequentially starts with a less invasive, no radiation type of test, and then goes to the CT. Let me be devil's advocate here for a minute. We do a carotid, it's normal. We do an EBCT, there's no calcium. Are you done? Or do you say, you know, I'm still worried about this patient. Let's see if they've got some soft plaque and do a CTA. No, that's what I would stop. The, the probability of having a non-calcified lesion of any substance in absence of plaque in two vascular beds is so small that it really, it would have to be, unless the patient is a heavy smoker, and we have seen exceptions, I would not proceed to CT angiography. I think there's a danger in promulgating the routine use of CT angiography as compared to coronary calcium scan. I'd like to thank Dr. Morteza Nagavi and Dr. P.K. Shah for coming on the show today. And we've been listening to a special segment on medical education on the Clinician's Roundtable on XM157. If you'd like to comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, please visit us at reachmd.com. And if you register with the promo code RADIO, we'll give you six months free of streaming ReachMD that you can listen to anytime at home or at work. And thank you for listening.